Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. My name is Tyler Brooks. I'm a volunteer from across the street at Moscow Real Life. I'm a member of our safety team. I'm on our men's leadership council. I'm on our prayer team. And me and my beautiful wife here, Alex, facilitate a young adult's life group. And today I'm, I'm really just excited to share with you what Jesus has shared with me. As you can see, the topic of my message today will be on identity. And identity is crucial. It's crucial that we understand our identity, who we are and who made us. There's a lot of themes in the Bible, and a lot of these themes are connected and interlinked. And this is why... Uh, Mike's a little, Mike's a little scratchy, sorry. This is why identity is so important. It is connected to all other themes in the Bible. And today, I want to discuss with you our corporate identity and our personal identity, and then our personal identity in relation to community. And by corporate identity, I mean the identity that we all share as human beings, as image bearers, and believers in Christ. And by personal identity, I mean the custom and unique identity that Jesus gave us long before we were ever formed. Jeremiah 1.5 says that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. You see, Jesus knew us and he formed us long before we were born in this physical world. The book of Revelation 2.17 actually tells us that someday when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to give us a white stone, and on that white stone will be written a new name. You see, Jesus knows us so well that when we get to heaven, he's actually going to give us a new name, replacing our current name with our truest identity. And that is the, uh, the difference, the contrast between corporate and personal identity. So with that, I would actually like to reintroduce myself. My name is Tyler Brooks. I'm the salt of the earth, and I'm the light of the world. I'm a piercer of darkness, I'm a pastor, and I have a servant's heart. And it is a blessing to be with you all here this morning. So we've got a lot of ground to cover on the topic of identity, so I want to go straight to examining the life of Jesus Christ. He is and always will be our role model for ministry. So anytime I'm preparing a message on anything, on anything, I go straight to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do here today. So Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. That's something we can all agree on. Something we should all agree on. But this morning, I want to examine just how Jesus lived a sinless life. You see, I think the meaning of sinless life in regards to Jesus is much deeper than what we kind of initially perceive it to be. When we say that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, it doesn't mean that as a 25-year-old carpenter while hammering in nails that he didn't miss the nail and whack his thumb and say some choice words in his moment of pain. He didn't, don't get me wrong, but again, I'm suggesting that the meaning of sinless is much deeper than what we generally initially think it is. You see, Jesus lived a sinless life because he never walked or operated outside of his true identity. Sin is separation. Jesus never separated himself from the Father. He did only what he saw his Father doing. And he is a perfect representation of God. So if it wasn't a lack of sin that gave Jesus the title of sinless, then sin isn't the source of our problems. Sin is a byproduct. And it's a byproduct of us walking outside of our identity in Christ. And identity is important. Matter of fact, it's so important that it was the first thing that Satan attacked both Adam and Eve and Jesus on. In Matthew 3, we're told the story of Jesus coming down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when Jesus emerges from the water, it says that the skies open up and the Holy Spirit descends down like a dove and rests on him. 
And then we hear the audible voice of God say, this is my son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. We then go to Matthew chapter four and it tells us that Jesus filled with the spirit was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, he was hungry and the tempter comes to him. And the first question the tempter asks him is this, if you are the son of God, they command these stones to be made bread. You see, the first attack, the first question by the tempter was to actually challenge and question Jesus' identity. He says, if you are the son of man, he wouldn't acknowledge that Jesus was the son of God. Even though, just a few verses earlier, we hear the audible voice of God declaring it so. It was like the tempter was trying to get Jesus, even if just for a moment, to question his true identity. And we see the same tactics being used when the serpent questions Eve. The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say you must not eat fruit of the trees of the garden? And, uh, excuse me, and Eve and the woman replied, God did say that we could eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but he did say not to eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and do not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the serpent was actually challenging Eve's identity. He convinced Adam and Eve that they could do something to become like God when they already were like God. And when I say that they were like God, I don't mean that they were gods. I mean that they were made in his likeness. They were perfectly and wonderfully made. And when the serpent got Eve to question her identity, he found a weakness and exploited it. You see, the fall of man was an identity crisis. Do you guys see the similarities in the attacks of the enemy, the, the questions that he was asking both Adam and Eve? See, the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that they could do something to become like something that they were already like. And the tempter tried to get Jesus to do something to prove to him that he was what he already was. He was attacking their identity. He was questioning their identity. You know, I think the, I think the most common form of attack from the enemy is actually the questions he asks us. The questions he gets us to ask ourselves. And I think that's important. I want to, I want to say that again. I think the most common form of attack from the enemy is the questions he gets us to ask ourselves. He wages a war in our mind daily. You know, generally his questions, they aren't outright lies. Most of the time they'll carry a little bit of truth. But it is always deception, and it leads to separation from the Father and unbelief, especially unbelief in who we are. But the enemy attacks what he fears the most. The first attack on Adam and Eve and Jesus was to attack their identity. So if he was the first thing, if he was going to attack Adam and Eve and Jesus' identity, do you think that he won't attack our identity? But the enemy can't change who we are. You see, he can only rob us of our confidence in who we are by getting us to agree with his lies like Eve and not the truth of Jesus. You see, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. The only power the enemy has over us is the power that we give him through our agreements with his lies. Every time we make an agreement with the enemy, with Satan, we take a piece of our true identity in Christ and we hand that over in exchange for a false identity. 
And Satan came to do three things, steal, kill, and destroy. So anytime we partner with him through these agreements, there is always a loss, always. And sometimes the questions he asks us and uh, the agreements he gets us to make, we actually think they're for our betterment and for the, the advancement of the kingdom of God. And I'll share a little bit of my personal story. In 2016, I was managing three supplement stores and I was a competitive bodybuilder and I had a series of events where the Lord was really talking to me and speaking to me and he was calling me into ministry. Um, it was so powerful that I actually, uh, I went to real life over in Moscow and I wrote on one of the connection cards, I said, please pray for me. I think I'm being called to ministry. I had no idea what this looked like. And uh, one invitation later, my whole life changed. But through this process, I asked Jesus, what do you want me to what do you want me to be? What do you want me to do? Jesus said, I'm calling you into ministry. I want you to walk with me. Just walk with me and I will make you a fisher of men. So in early 2017, I began my intimate personal walk with the Lord. And it wasn't long after that, the enemy started bombarding me with these questions. I was 27 years old. I'd never been to seminary. I'd never been to Bible school. I started to question myself. Am I educated enough? Am I smart enough? Am I worthy? Does my past life disqualify me from ever being on stage and speaking in front of people like you? I began to make agreements with these questions, with these lies. And by making these agreements, I actually stepped outside of my personal walk with Jesus. And I began sprinting forward under my own human strength to try to prove to the world that I was actually worthy. And in the process, my life started to unravel around me. Even though I was pursuing kingdom things, my life started to be impacted negatively. And the, the number one thing it impacted was my relationship with my beautiful wife. You see, I left our joined walk with Christ to sprint ahead of her. And when I stopped to focus on these issues that were popping up in my life, I noticed that they weren't getting better, some were getting worse, and new ones were popping up. I tried to drag and pull my wife along, and she would just drag and try to pull back. You see, Satan had convinced me just like Eve. He convinced me that I could do something to become something that Jesus told me in 2016 that I already was. And it took me coming to this realization that I had made these agreements before things started to get better. I had to return to my personal walk with the Lord. I had to focus on the source not the byproducts, not the symptoms. When I stopped focusing on the issues in my life and put my primary focus, it doesn't mean that I stopped working on my marriage. I put my primary focus in Christ and all of a sudden the issues in my life started to rectify themselves. With that, I want to share some truths with you guys about who we are in Christ, our corporate identity. John 1.12, we are children of God. Romans 3.24, we are justified and redeemed. Romans 8.17, we are heirs of God. 1 Corinthians 6.9, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.4, we are chosen. Ephesians 1.5, we are adopted. Ephesians 1.7, we are redeemed and forgiven. Ephesians 1.13, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. I think one of my favorite, though, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And righteousness, guys, is just behavior that is morally and justifiably right. The Bible's standard for human righteousness is God's own perfection, which is impossible for us to attain. 
because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I want to share this message with you because I really felt the Lord put this on my heart to share with you guys today. Righteousness is a being word before it's a doing word. Now let me explain. We are the righteousness of God, and righteousness like grace is a gift we've attained through Jesus Christ the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. Paul says in Romans 5.17, For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, righteousness is a gift. And righteousness is a being word before it's a doing word. And I had it explained to me like this. Righteousness isn't looking at Jesus through a window and telling yourself, if I only try harder, I can become more like him. Righteousness is looking in a mirror and seeing Jesus' eyes of fire looking back at you and you realizing that through him, you already are. 1 John 4.17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. For as he is, so are we in this world. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. That's how the Father sees us. He no longer sees our imperfections. He sees the righteousness of his own Son. Now, even though we are the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, we're still going to sin. We live in a broken world and we haven't been perfected yet, but that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The old covenant was about works. The new covenant is about believing in him and his works. We are no longer graded by our report card. We're graded by his. And he never missed a question on any test ever. Straight A's. I do want to state that the gift of grace and the gift of righteousness is not a license to sin. If we're living and loving habitual sin, it would beg to question who we're actually serving. You know, I know this message of righteousness can be hard for some people to hear. There's a lot of theological debate against works versus grace. Some will say that whoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Some people will say that that's not the case, that faith without works is dead. The answer to both of these theological questions, the answer to all of our questions really is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And when we walk in our identity and we're abiding in Christ, we will be covered by his gift of grace and his gift of righteousness. And we abide in our identity and abide in Christ, we will bear fruit. We will produce the works. You see, works, grace, and righteousness are byproducts of the source, Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage us to not divide ourselves over grace versus works and unite around the source, Jesus Christ. You know, I, uh, I've been on the police for many years now. I came up to the U of I in 2017 to play football for the Vandals. Well, I came up to go to school while playing football for the Vandals. Um, and, and I did just that. I, I earned an undergrad degree in exercise science, and I earned a master's in movement science. And exercise science was a study of what happens in our body when we move. 
And movement science was a study of why we move and how we can encourage others to move and live healthy, active lifestyles. And during my master's program, I took a class called Behavior Change. It was my, the most favorite class I took in college. And there was a story that our teacher referenced, and I can't remember if it was an actual study, but the story is extremely relevant to what I'm talking about today. And I've referenced this many times throughout my life, and I use it in my life group all the time. And in this story, these dog trainers noticed that there was two categories of dogs. In the first category were dogs that struggled with positive behavior change. They struggled to make good behavior change. And in the second group was the categories of dogs that actually very quickly had positive behavior change. And what the trainers noticed was the number one variable between these two groups, these two categories of dogs, was their owners and how the owners trained their dogs and more specifically spoke to their dogs. In the first group, the dogs that struggled with positive behavior, the owners were harsh and condemning. And they'd often correct their dog by yelling at them, saying, bad dog. The second group, the dogs that had good positive behavior change, their owners spoke lovingly and encouraging over them and would correct them gently, saying things like, hey, bad behavior, bad behavior. You know, I think it's easy for us to kind of sympathize with the dog owner who, after two years of working with this dog, his dog is still misbehaving. We'd probably, at surface level, look at it and say, it's probably just a bad dog. But when we break this down and unpack it, who do we really blame? Do we blame the owner for calling his dog bad, or do we blame the dog for agreeing with his owner? Right? This is important. I think you guys are catching on to what I'm saying here. A bad dog will have bad behavior because that's his identity. And bad behavior is now his nature. A good dog will have good behavior because that's his identity. And good behavior is his nature. Right? You know, as a man thinketh, therefore he is in the world. What do we think of ourselves? If the voices in your head are calling you bad, if they're harsh and condemning, guys, that's not your owner. He wants to be your owner, but he's not your owner. Your owner is love. And your owner doesn't just call you good. He calls you very good. You are tov me'od. You know, do we see ourselves the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit see us? You know, to consider ourselves anything less than what Jesus calls us, rob him of the fullness of the reward of his sacrifice we were bought and paid for with a price a price paid by Jesus on the cross you know he didn't come down here just to accomplish a mission he came down here to manifest the heart of the father and his love for his people he came down here to set you free and to give you life and life more abundantly so again to consider ourselves anything less than what Jesus considers us is to rob him of the fullness of the reward of his sacrifice. Now, there are two kingdoms that are constantly fighting for our attention and our agreement. It's the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell. My desire for all of us, myself included, is to break the agreements that we've made with the kingdom of hell. Surrender those over and exchange them for our identity and our agreements in the kingdom of heaven. Even if you don't feel worthy, even if you don't understand it, right? If we want the peace 
that surpasses all understanding, we have to surrender our right to understand. I think that's true confession. I don't think confession is just saying sorry for our sin. Sin's a byproduct. I think true confession is coming before the Lord and bearing your heart and saying, Lord, these are the agreements I've made with the enemy. Exchanging those agreements, handing that over to Jesus, and in return, accepting your true identity in Christ through him. You know, it's funny how the Lord works. Uh, It's really funny. Last week, I actually had a conversation with a young man. And he was sharing his, his upbringing. He had a rough, rough childhood, a broken home. Uh, parents didn't love themselves. And he, grew up, he grew up early. He had to take care of himself early. And uh, he identified himself as an anxious person with depression. That was a character trait that he said that he carried and was a, a product of his environment when he was younger. You know, when he, for example, if he was planning a vacation, 95% of his time, planning was planning for what could go wrong very little time was actually spent living in joy waiting to see what would go right and I got to share some truths with him like I'm sharing with you this morning and he started to actually agree that anxiety actually isn't part of who I am because if he were to stand in the presence of Jesus Christ and say I am an anxious person Jesus wouldn't acknowledge that Jesus will not acknowledge your false identity he won't He would say, look, I knew you and I formed you before you were ever born and anxiety wasn't anywhere in that equation. By the time that I got done having this conversation with the man, he began to break. It was the start of a breaking of agreements with the enemy. Praise Jesus. You know, it's important that we know our identity on a personal level too. Our personal identity was given to us by Jesus. It's what he formed us to do in this world. Two weeks ago, one of my mentors preached on the message of identity, and he said that God gave us each a unique identity to help us to carry out our callings and our assignments in life, and he's absolutely right. And with that unique identity came a very specific set of gifts and talents and treasures that were infused in us before our our creation. Each one of you in this room have special gifts that were given to you by God. If you don't think you do, then I would like to invite you into community. Because while our personal identities are given to us by Jesus, they're often identified and they're absolutely matured through community. We often see things in others that we don't see, that they don't see in themselves, right? And we come together, we edify each other, we build each other up, we make each other better, we hold each other accountable. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know, as individuals, we are a specific member of the body of Christ. And together, we make up the full body of Christ with Jesus as the head. You know, I was introduced to what's called the Gestalt Theory by my high school linebackers coach. And Gestalt Theory just states that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And what Gestalt was theorizing was that there were, there were characteristics and traits to a whole that could not be observed, understood, or deduced by evaluating the parts by themselves. An analogy for this would be a basketball team. If we had five basketball players and we went down the roster and we identified that 
each one of these basketball players had two, two personal gifts, we would come to the conclusion that when they were playing as one united on the court, that we would see 10 gifts. But in reality, there'd be more than 10 gifts when they are playing united. These extra gifts are what Gestalt is theorizing. Now, there's a lot of biblical and practical applications for this. And I would go as far as to say that it's, it's really not a theory at all, right? The word tells us that when God is with us and he is, one shall put a thousand to flight. Two shall put 10,000 to flight. Growing exponentially as we come together. And I like this. It's a draft horse analogy. One draft horse can pull 8,000 pounds. Two draft horses can pull 24,000 pounds. Furthermore, if those two draft horses are trained together, if they're doing life together and they're walking together, they can pull 32,000 pounds. You see, on paper, if we were to identify and evaluate the two horses individually, 8,000 and 8,000, we would come to the conclusion, naturally, that they would pull 16,000 pounds. But the whole, the unified whole, is greater than the sum of its parts. And with that, now that we've discussed our personal and corporate identity and a little bit about our, our personal identity as a community, I actually want to lead us all, if you join along, into what's called an identity exchange. So we're just going to go into a time of directed prayer. Um, during this time, I just want you guys to clear your minds. I want you to focus on Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to identify, we're, we're going to let Jesus identify some of the agreements we've made with the enemy. And some of you guys probably already know what some of these agreements are. And what I want you to do during this time is I just, I want you to picture Jesus in, in whatever way your brain pictures him. I just want you to sit in, in the presence of our Lord and just receive, okay? So if everybody would close your eyes, I'll just lead us in this. Here we are, Lord, in your presence, and we ask God that you would silence the enemy around us and in our minds and in our lives. Lord, we are so used to hearing the enemy in the world, in our flesh all the time, Lord. Silence these voices in Jesus' name. Lord, fill us with the fullness of your spirit. Sanctify and consecrate our minds and our imaginations right now as we think of you, Lord. You have given us the ability to dream and imagine, and through our imagination, right now we can enter the throne room and into your presence. Lord, we stand in your presence, in your midst, and nothing talks through our imagination but you. Nobody speaks to us but you, Father. Father God Almighty, in the name of the true Lord Jesus, search us and know us, and reveal to us the identities we have received from the world. Lord, what are the false identities we believe? I just want everybody to take a few moments and imagine that you have a piece of paper in front of you. Jesus is standing in front of you. I want you to write your false identities on this piece of paper. Just take a couple minutes and hear from the Lord. Now, when you have these identities written down, I want you to imagine that, that Jesus puts his arms out. He's got his hands cupped. I want you to take that piece of paper with your false identities on it, and I want you to hand it to Jesus. I want you to watch what he does with it. Does he tear it up? Does he burn it? What does he do? Oh, Lord, we reject these false identities. We, we reject them in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to know and believe in the name that you call us. 
Your word says in Isaiah 43.1 that you have chosen us and you have called us by name. What is your name for us, Lord? What do you call us? Take a few moments. Now imagine Jesus has his own piece of paper and he's writing on it. He's got a message for you. He hands that to you. What does that paper say? What does Jesus tell you that you are? Father God, we receive this name that you call us and we believe it and we are choosing to put our trust in you and your identity for us. Lord, is there anything else that you would like us to know? Let's take a few more minutes and sit in the presence of our Lord. Is there anything you feel he's telling you? Who you are? How much he loves you? Thank you, Jesus, that you came to serve and not be served. Thank you for the cross that you've carried for us and for the blood that you have shed. Thank you for your victory on the cross and with it righteousness, abundant grace, and eternal life for those who believe in you. Thank you that you chose us, formed us, knew us, and named us, Lord, for time. Thank you for your sacrifice, and thank you for who we are in you. Lord, thank you for the wonderful, mighty people in this room. Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. That's what I call an identity exchange. That's, that's powerful. That, that has changed my life. Anytime the enemy starts getting you to question your true identity and you feel like you've made agreements with the wrong kingdom, I encourage you to do just this, an identity exchange. Come before the Lord, hand those false identities over to him, and return, receive your true identity of Jesus Christ. Now that we've broken agreements with the enemy, what do we do? What do we do? Our blueprint for this is John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, we can do nothing. You know, it doesn't say try harder. It says abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Now, abiding itself can be hard, right? But the heart of this is we don't focus on the works. We don't focus on the issues first. Our primary focus is on Jesus Christ. I'd also like to point out that it is indeed the branches that bear fruit, not the vine. But the branches only bear fruit when they're abiding in and remaining in the vine. You see, God chose us to be on commission with Christ, to destroy the works of the enemy, and as Matthew 28 says, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, knowing that he will be with us surely to the very end of the age. There's <laughs> just a thought with you guys that I just feel like sharing. You know, I think about John 15, 5 a lot, and I, I sometimes wonder if we ask God to do stuff that he, he actually sent us here to do. Right? Like, Lord, Lord, I really want to see breakout and revival in my community. And God's like, yes, yeah, so do I. That's why I put you there. Right? We're on mission with Christ. We bear fruit. And we bear fruit by abiding in him. You know, there's a, I mentioned there's a lot of connected themes in the Bible. And we've, you know, I've thrown out a lot of terms of, Identity, abiding, obedience, and bearing fruit, they really are connected, guys. They're, inter- they're, they're inseparable. Like when we understand our identity 
and we're walking in the Lord, we will bear fruit and we will be obedient to God, his word and his law. You know, I asked a, I asked a young man in my life group what the difference between obedience and abiding was to him. And I loved his response so much that I wanted to share it with you. He said, obedience is an action. Abiding is a lifestyle. Abiding in Jesus is a lifestyle. So that's my call to action for all of us. Stop trying and start abiding, right? Understand who we are. You know, God walked with Adam and Eve. God walks in you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You carry the kingdom of God in you. And when you walk into a room, you change the atmosphere of that room. You really do. My desire is for us to live conscious of this. Destroy the works of the enemy. Make disciples of all nations. Go out and evangelize. There's a lot of fear and trepidation around the term evangelize. I think a lot of people assume it's standing on a street corner with a sign or going into Walmart and bugging people. Guys, it's not. It's... It's so much easier than that. When we realize who we are and whose we are, and we live conscious in that, we walk in that identity, we will change the atmosphere of every room we enter into. You know, there are people in our community, thousands, that don't have any interest in church. They don't have an interest in Jesus. They just don't, I'm being honest. But do you know what they have an interest in? You guys, they're interested in you and what you have. When you live consciously of this, of your identity in Christ, you won't have to, you won't have to try hard to go get them. They will come to you. And that is the most powerful form of evangelism there is. A disciple of Christ understanding who they are, walking and abiding in their identity. Guys, if we can, if we can maintain what I, this, what I call a renewed mindset, like this renewed mindset, it'll God can take us places that our old mind couldn't even comprehend. Really. And the last thing I want to talk to you guys about this morning, really one of the most important things that the Lord's put on my heart this morning, is to talk about our identity as a church. And I, I won't spend too much time on this, but I really just, I want to share my, my heart with you for a minute. I'm not unaware of the things that you guys are facing as a church body. But I want to stress that the identity of the church was never meant to be hung on the shoulders of one man other than Jesus. Church is not where pastors work. Church is where the body works. That's where we work. Church is not a building. Church is where we do life every day of the week. Our church identity isn't tied to one man. It's not about the God of man. Or excuse me, it's not about the man of God. It's about the God of man. Really. The identity of this church is in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the church. Your identity is in Christ. I want to read John 17, 20 
chapter 25 as we head into communion together. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed for all of us. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will receive, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me, and I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.